Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I have a first-time guest, but somebody I've known for a long time, Matt Moore, who writes for CBSSports.com. I think of him as the grand poobah of hardwood paroxysm, which is, I believe, how we met the first time. And we had thought about doing a conversation for a little while and got a couple of really nice things to talk about. We were already going to do one, but the Eric Bledsoe trade happened a few hours before we recorded, and then he had a nice piece on Cleveland's defense that inspired me to to, to look into some stuff. And, and so we talk about that, and then we go into various other topics for a little bit over an hour. I really did enjoy the conversation. So This episode is brought to you by Harry's. You can get your free trial set, which includes a blade and their awesome shave gel. Go to harrys.com slash real GM and you can check it out. And I hope you really enjoy this podcast. That was a lot of fun to put together. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, I'm glad to be on. Thanks for having me on, man. We had talked about doing this early this week, and it just so happened that we're recording it a few hours after the Eric Bledsoe trade. You and I have both talked about it a little bit on Twitter. My piece for Sport News just came out. What are you thinking about it at this moment, and where do you think we go from here with these two teams? Yeah, I think for the Bucks, it seems like it's a really big deal, but it's probably not like they'll, they'll they have higher potential like if it, it, a lot of times with these trades it feels like you know if things work out then yeah it's really great but they need it's not just like one thing that has to work out it's okay Bledsoe has to you know kind of blend in has to fit with Giannis first and foremost like that's the biggest thing is he and Giannis have to kind of click and then Bledsoe has to show that he is the player that he was two three years ago and not the player he's been over the last you know 18 months when he was so miserable in Phoenix and really that squad was and if that works out then there's a, a big potential here I, I think he gives them uh, more options for what they can do removes vulnerabilities in certain respects he can boost them in a lot of ways but a lot of this stuff has to kind of go in it, it all has to kind of tilt right for the bucks and you know in the suns it's like well you know they ruin their leverage it's another point guard they burn bridges with they're gonna get a pick at some point way down the future and there's a slim possibility that things go absolutely just pear-shaped for the bucks and then that pick turns into be really valuable in a couple of years and we're all like hey look at that but the most likely scenario is they get a moderate value pick and that's fine for what they were the situation that they were in they're still a franchise that's kind of lost but i think the the interesting thing for milwaukee is the lineups they can produce now, the way they can play, and what kind of player Bledsoe is going to be for them. Because if he's capable of doing, uh, if he's still capable of being a guy that can shoot 38% from three, they can get to the rim, they can defend at a high level, he's going to help them in a lot of ways. But you need all those things to go right, and he's got to mesh with Blood, with Giannis, and that's a big question here. I like that you use the word options, because I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And there is no certainty with this trade, not only, as you mentioned, you know what Eric Bledsoe we're going to see, because he turns 28 in a couple weeks. Actually, I think it's almost exactly a month, so... We, we don't know if that guy who was so defensively dominant at age 25 and loosely at age 26 is still there. Like, we, we hope so. I mean, you always, and definitely the intensity will be better than it was in Phoenix. It can't really be less. And that's encouraging. And another thing that they have going for them is that they don't have to play Bledsoe a ton of minutes. So they can try to get him more in the, if they want to, in the 26, 28 range and just say, hey, play, play as hard as you can. And if you're, if you get tired or whatever, then we, we have another guy and they have Brogdon. The other reason that I really like this trade from their perspective is, again, on the options idea is that while Malcolm Brogdon had a nice year, he won Rookie of the Year in a in a very weak class, I don't think any of us were sure of what he was going to be and how he's going to mesh with that group long term. And what Bledsoe does is he says, OK, well, maybe Bledsoe's not going to work. Maybe Brogdon's not going to work. But the odds are that one of the two will be fine. And Bledsoe has been, I would say he's probably around like 15th or so best point guard in the league. And that would be a really nice outcome for Brogdon. So I think that that it's kind of a hedge in that way. And I like that from Milwaukee's perspective, because it's hard to find point guards of that caliber. Yeah, I'm higher on Brogdon. The thing I like about Brogdon is that he impressed me last year just because, one, I'm always impressed when 
rookies come in and contribute to playoff teams. I just think it's way harder than we kind of ever expect because so often we're just going gaga over guys that are putting up stats on horrible teams. And we're like, well, they're young and they're going to get better. It's like, okay. And that's there's a challenge to that. But there's also a challenge for guys like Steven Adams that came in and earned starting roles on teams that were really trying to win now and couldn't afford rookie mistakes. So you have to play within yourself and you have to make the right decisions and you have to be impactful and you can't be a liability in huge ways. You're not going to get minutes. And so for Brogdon, he really impressed me in that respect. And I like this for him because to me, Bledsoe's a great kind of counter where he's so athletic and he can shoot off ball. So Brogdon can now act as a secondary facilitator. He could be a secondary playmaker. It means that no longer is, is it going to be like, you know, if the team is failing, it's like, well, you know, Giannis had a big night, but then he had more other point guard. It's like, well, okay, that's now on Bledsoe. That's Bledsoe's responsibility to handle. So Brogdon can just kind of develop and fill in those gaps. And that kind of a role, I think, is terrific for him. If they needed to move him, they, they can still move him if they see an opportunity. I mean, that's what all these GMs, I, I, in my opinion, from the – from talking to executives, that's why I always hear is like, well, you know, it's not just this move. It's what we can now go after a third guy. And I'm like, well, see if the two guys work first and then let's we can talk about the third. But I think that that Brogdon, I think, fits in really well. It gives them a capacity to run some small ball units even more so. And that is probably going to be valuable considering the kind of teams that they're going to face in the Eastern Conference, it gives them that kind of option. And having a guy whose athleticism can just kind of overwhelm you, depending on how he looks with all the injuries as he gets older. But if, if, with that kind of capability, I think that, that adds something. Like, the, you know, if you're the the Cavaliers, like you don't want to see Eric Bledsoe with, with the guys that you've got. Like you don't want to see Eric Bledsoe versus Derrick Rose and Isaiah Thomas. That's just not the guy you want to see because he's going to be able to, to one apply physical pressure and get up the floor. And then you know, if you're talking about like the Celtics, who run a lot of small ball lineups right now, same kind of deal where the Bucks can roll out Bledsoe and Brogdon and then Snell and Middleton and Giannis, and that's like a, that is a insane kind of lineup if they can get shots to go down. So I like I'm higher on Brogdon than you are. I like what he brings as as no no longer does he have to be like oh okay he's going to have like the really tough point guard defensive assignment. No, like he can go focus on the secondary assignment. Um, and those situations I've seen benefit players a lot when they're not facing the primary threat. That's a great point, and it's also a huge benefit for Milwaukee because they've really struggled to generate reliable offense when Giannis has been off the floor. I think their offensive rating this year without Giannis, again, small sample size, but it's like 99, and last year it was 105, which isn't great. So you need players who can capably do that, and Del Vadova, you know, is going to probably be marginalized, at least for the time being, with that, but, I mean, the Bledsoe-Brogdon combination has a much higher ceiling, and then I understand, especially considering he was their best center last year, why losing Greg Monroe hurts. And he has been injured for this year. That's part of the reason, a large part of the reason why he's been worse. But fortunately for Milwaukee, he plays one of the most replaceable positions in the league right now. They have to actually do it if they want to, but getting a 60 to 75% Greg Monroe is a whole lot easier than getting a 60 to 75% Eric Bledsoe. Yeah, you know, Monroe, I, I've been, I was high on him. I voted him, I think, second for six man last year. I was impressed because he got, he got hammered about, about his defense. You know, Zach Lowe wrote about him extensively. I wrote about kind of the upside that I saw with what he could do was hammered and hammered and hammered about his defense. That's a guy that went in and actually dealt with his criticism. And you don't see that all the time. He's a guy that actually said, no, I, I got to get better at this. And he did. He, he was, you know, signed to be kind of like the star player in Milwaukee. And then the league just revolutionized when the Warriors came about. And then that was completely, you know, he, he was marginalized. But when he was sent to the bench, he didn't pitch a fit. He didn't call it. He didn't grumble in the media. He just took it. Like he, he just accepted. I'm coming off the bench now. He's a guy that plays no matter what position that he's in. And, I like guys like that, and he's efficient too. That's part of his, you know, a lot of center players, they're just not very efficient. But Monroe's been very efficient. It's just that the league doesn't have a whole lot of use for guys like that because of where the efficiency and how the game has shifted. So you're right, though, that, that Milwaukee can very easily replace that. Like, if you want a center, there's a million out there you can go get. Like, everybody's got centers that they're willing to move from Yamahimi to Bismack Biombo to Nikola Vucevic, like, just up and down the line, you can go get a center if you want one and if you want to add like a maybe a more refined rim protector or an older guy like those guys are definitely out there to acquire and and just like Monroe was he was providing something to the bench but he wasn't providing something that made units work and that's kind of the difference is that he individually was playing well but I think especially at this point in the league it's why you need two-way players and efficient guys and range is that 
you have to have guys whose gravity and whose skill set make everybody better. And it was like Monroe could make good passes to the perimeter, but he wasn't changing the way that the defense approached it. And so from that perspective, I don't think that they're losing a whole lot. They're going to need to find ways to augment that, and they're still going to need to develop guys and be opportunistic. But I, yeah, there's no big loss there, I think, for them. The other element on that note about this trade is that while it, and this has been kind of well acknowledged as being a big part of this trade, is that Milwaukee adds a lot of money to their books next year. Bledsoe's making 14 and a half. They actually save about, I think it's about 3 million this year. And so what that means is they have a little amount of money that they can spend if they want to on this year. That could be through, they have a trade exception they could use or through free agency. And so if they, in the next month or two, realize, yeah, we really need somebody like Rigman or we really need that kind of that offensive center or something else, depending on what happens, they can get that guy. They they could do it as a buyout, you know, or even an unbalanced trade, because another thing that Milwaukee has, if they wanted to do it, is a bunch of guys that make kind of like around $10 million. So if they want, you know, you mentioned Yamahimi, like, yeah, you, you probably don't want it. You can't trade for Yamahimi like into cap space or anything like that, but you can make a move where, hey, maybe you'll save Washington $5 million a year and swap him for John Henson if John Henson's disappointing or something like that. Like, there are ways that they can make this happen if they figure that's their biggest need. And if it ends up not being their biggest need, then they're okay. Yeah, and that's one of the things is a lot of the guys are on those medium kind of contracts at that kind of slot. Like, you know, uh, Kenneth Fareed's another another target there at $13 million. Um, He can slot in contracts, I, I think. Next year, I think, is when it runs out. Yeah, so, so like they, they could do that for Toledovich, let's say. Like, Toledovich yeah. for Toledovich for Fareed and some asset probably going from Milwaukee to, to Denver, a small one. You could do things like that. And there, there are so many guys that make around that money, and that's the easier way to make a move. You're not going to trade for you know, a guy who's who's making an extra $10 million, but there are a bunch of guys that teams aren't happy with. And so just try to find the one that makes the most sense for you. And that's why you need good pro scouts and a, a good GM to try to make all that happen. Yeah. And, and I, I will say, I, I like that GM John Horse was opportunistic here. I, I like that he, he jumped on a situation because it's funny, you know, Dell Demps has rightfully taken a lot of heat. And one of Dell Demps' problems was he tried to build a team that could win immediately around Anthony Davis from the get-go. He, he piled on to try and win, to make sure that Davis was in a winning environment. And in doing so, he compromised upside. So he just got like solid veterans that were going to be able to, to just put a good team around and then Davis would fill out and make them better. And it didn't work out that way for a lot of reasons. Drew Holiday's injury, Omer Oshik turned into horribleness, a, a, a whole bunch of things happened. But there was also kind of this feedback from from that move where it was like, well, Philly definitely did the right thing. And it's like, well, Philly did the right thing for where they were at. But if, if you're in this situation, like you don't want to surround Giannis with a bunch of young guys. Like you want to surround him with guys that can win now. And if Eric Bledsoe is in his prime and is capable of playing well and brings what you need at a position that you need, like being the team that is willing to step up to the plate and go, yes, we will give up a first round pick provided it's got the protections that we need. And we'll give you this asset that has some value, that is a movable contract, that clears your books. We will make that deal. Like We will go ahead and be opportunistic. I think a lot of GMs talk themselves out of making these types of moves because they're just they're so uncertain and they wind up thinking about it and being like, well, we'll see and maybe later and we can revisit it. And I think you, you let opportunities pass you by. Sam Presti did not do that this summer. Like Sam Presti went after opportunities that were available to him to improve the roster. Uh, and I think Milwaukee did the same thing here. And I think that's a really smart move with where Giannis is and projecting out the next couple of years. I also think both of those teams or GMs benefited from having a counterpart that wanted what they were offering. So, for example, in the well, unless Sabonis and Oladipo really are the world changers they've been so far, which is, you know, it's possible that certainly that they've been better than they were, that they are better than they were last year. But that's what Indiana wanted. They want, they didn't want to do a full rebuild. They didn't want those distant picks. And it sounds like based on, you know, just logic and everything else that one of part of what Phoenix wanted was to get out of some money. And considering they are awful, that's not a big surprise. And so Milwaukee benefited from having that right piece. Whereas like, let's say Denver, all of their money either had player options or guaranteed money of some form for next year. You, that's another reason why you want to press those opportunities because you never know who's going to want what you have. And so you have those conversations and hopefully it lines up. It doesn't always, sometimes there's bad luck, but Horst and Presti both benefit from that. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that they maybe Phoenix did well here was they just, they didn't overweight and they didn't wait for the, for the offers to change. Um, <clears throat> a couple of people told me in the last couple of weeks that basically 
teams got their offers in early. Like once the Bledsoe thing happened, every team, a lot of teams just kind of said like, look, this is, this is where we are. Um, this is, this is what we're willing to offer. Here's a standing offer that you can take for Bledsoe. If you get to that point, like this is what we've got and we're not going to go over the negotiation line. Wasn't necessarily shifting. That may have changed with Milwaukee in recent days that I'm not privy to, but a lot of teams had standing offers in terms of like, look, this is what we got and this is all we can really afford to give. You can take it or leave it if, if you want to, but you know what we've kind of got. Uh, and I think for Phoenix, the, the money part plays a role in that. And that's, you know, there's good parts and bad parts. Like, yeah, flexibility, but it's also like, well, it's a server. You know, this is a server being server and, and clearing the slate. And there's probably going to be more moves. Like they're probably going to look to dump more money because that's what they're going to do. And, and then you start wondering about like, well, okay, if you start dumping everything, like what are you really looking at with Devin Booker? Is Devin Booker going to develop the right way? And I think that those are like much bigger questions. Like there's a whole bunch of questions about Phoenix and my biggest concerns about Phoenix are all about their culture and their environment. Like if you're Devin Booker and you've just seen what's gone on the last two, three years and, and you're looking at it and saying what happened with Isaiah Thomas, and what happened with Goran Dragic and what happened with the Morris twins and what happened, even though the Morris twins was a, a more complicated situation and, and what happened with, with Eric Bledsoe, like over and over and over again, there's this pattern and, and you just got to be wondering like, you know, are they going to, even if you're happy with how they treat you, are you going to be in a situation where they're going to to have the culture to put a winning team around you? And I think that's that's going to be a concern, I think, for everybody involved. And that's where Phoenix is going to have to start with their rebuild because they're not going to be able to pull in free agents just by having money. Um, otherwise, they're going to wind up in that situation that Orlando put themselves in where they overpaid to try and make up for it. And that's that's where I think you start hitting really bad returns on investment is when you're trying to overpay to make up for not just market deficiencies, but cultural gaps in terms of this is not a place where players know they can win. The timeline element of this is very concerning for Phoenix because we could see some of the other players. First of all, I think Devin Booker has impressed. You know, he's, he's a talented scorer, but I don't think he alone is going to make them a good team. And then they have, right. you know, Chris and Bender, who both could be good players. We don't really know at this point. Josh Jackson, still too early, you know, with all, and also they drafted really young guys. And I, I don't blame them for that. But, well, actually, Josh Jackson wasn't really young, but he was young. So you have all that running together, and, you know, now it looks like McDonough's, you know, he signed a contract extension. He's going to be there for a while. They don't have a ton of flexibility. You know, they gain a little bit in 2018, though I still think they should wait for 2019. So if you're, or as you said, if you're Devin Booker, you're sitting there going, well, when am I going to be on a good team? And it's even, in some ways, more desolate than Anthony Davis. He's also not as good as Anthony Davis, but the idea basically being, when am I going to get my chance to shine? And that's a really hard thing for a player to take. I remember in the early days of when I covered the Warriors, you know, that was a team that didn't have much hope. And it was hard on the players, you know, that day to day of being like, okay, I'm my team's going to get their butts kicked probably for the next five months. That's not easy to take. Yeah, I don't know where they're going to go. Like, I like Bender a lot. Um, I've actually I liked him when I saw him at the Basketball Without Borders camp a couple of years ago. I liked him as a prospect. I really like what I've seen from him now. He, he is the one guy on Phoenix that even when they started the season and were just this complete hazmat zone, when they were just horrible defensively, he was the one guy that I was like, you know, he's really still competing. Like, he is giving good effort and trying to make good rotations. All of Bender's issues are entirely about understanding personnel, uh, getting a knowledge base on them, refining the abilities that he has now. So I like Bender a lot, especially defensively. But you don't look at him and go like, wow, this kid's going to be special. He's going to be a star. That's definitely not where he is. So if he's not going to be there, and then you look at the rest of the roster and and everybody's out on Marquise Chris right now. Jackson, I think, has actually looked worse than I expected. He's looked just really bad. And it's, you're right, absolutely too early. And there's lots of time and, and he could make jumps in second or third year and be fine. And maybe he'll he'll get where he needs to be. But yeah, I just think that Phoenix right now, overall, you have to think that they are in the worst position of any team in the league, not only right now, but in the future. And, and the idea is that all their draft picks are going to make up for that. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, if you if you keep putting talented players in a bad environment, when's it going to turn around? It's amazing that it looks like they've swung past the Nets because the Nets have some young players and the Nets are getting out of the circumstance where they're going to do their picks, where they owe their picks. They still, of course, owe this year. The other thing that Phoenix has to hang their hat on eventually is that they are getting those two first from Miami from the Dragas trade, which ends up being the most successful by far of the three trades involving their three, their former three point guards. But those 
picks, I mean, we still don't know how good they're going to be. They'll be they'll be okay, and Phoenix is going to have their own. But it, if that's the way you're building, it just takes a really long time, and you have to be patient, as you said. And that's where you can bait yourself into those bad decisions. And you think back to like that they went hard after Lamarcus Aldridge, and while Aldridge is still a talented player, I don't think he would have brought that team like into the playoffs or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, Lamarcus Aldridge has to be like, whew, dodge that one. That's that's got to be a moment of relief for him. Yeah, and you know, a lot of it's also, you, know, you obviously, you need the lottery. That's like a big deal is you need the lottery to swing your way. <clears throat> you know, it'd be interesting this year, if they can land top three, which they absolutely should, then you're really looking at, there's three guys that are considered not can't miss, but pretty close to can't miss and Doncic and Porter and Bagley. So, you know, then you would have a, like a real franchise guy to kind of build around if, if Booker doesn't make a leap this season and start looking like he's a guy that can lead your team as its best player. So there's all these opportunities that can come, but you also like you have to hit, you know, like we don't know. Like we don't know if that's the thing is, is with Donchitz and Bagley and Porter. What if you get the one guy out of them that misses? What if two of them hit and one of them misses and you get the one that misses? All of these things. And then you got the tanking rules that are changing, which obviously aren't going to have a huge impact. The percentages aren't drastically different, but they are they're really problematic. I think if you're in this area where the suns are, where you're like our entire hope rests on the draft and building a whole bunch of young talent. That's where I think it gets, it gets really complicated. It does. One last point on this trade. And I don't think, especially because the miles on the tires are very, very different that it matters that much, but it's just one guy getting drafted young and one guy getting drafted old. Eric Bledsoe is three years older than Malcolm Brogdon. It's not that big a difference. Thank you. Thank you for Thank you for sharing that piece of information with me. I did not, I wasn't aware of how old Malcolm Brogdon was. And I, I thank you for sharing that information with me, Danny. Just brighten my day up. Thank you. Anytime. Before Matt and I move on to many of the other topics that we want to discuss, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about Harry's. Harry's is a sponsor that I have personally used for a long time, and I love the way that they are doing the promotion right now with Real Jam Radio. So, I can tell you about how much I love their shave gel. That is my absolute favorite thing that they have. And their razor gets a great shave for me consistently, which I love and is important to me, especially now that I'm doing stuff on camera more often and doing public appearances related to the book and everything else like that. Looking your best is more important than ever, though. It's always important. And what I like so much about what Harry's is doing beyond their approach and everything like that, and I'll talk about that in a bit, is the way that they're betting on themselves in this ad, in this current promotion. So what you do is you go to harrys.com slash real GM and you get a free trial set. So that's a razor, blades, shave gel, and a blade cover. All you have to do is pay shipping. So this isn't a, you know, buy a bunch of stuff and you get a little bit cheaper. And of course, those are an important part of our business. But basically what they're saying is if you try their excellent materials, you will want to get them for yourself. You will want to give your money there. And that all you have to do is pay shipping to get it to make it happen. And they when you get when you get it and if you love it as much as I do when you want to buy it the great thing is that it's high quality materials at a great price so it's not like they're trying to sneak this in for you and then trying to get you to go to these sky high rates no no it's it's a great product at a reasonable price that they're just having you start for free so that you can see what it is you can experience it for yourself and then you can work from there and they control the means of production they bought a, their own factory which had 100 years of of blade making experience and then they take out a lot of the other factors that drive up cost whether that's middlemen and markups depending on the stores they're going in by dealing directly with people they can accomplish their goals and so try it out go to harrys.com slash real gm get the free trial set all you have to do is pay shipping and then hopefully you love it as much as i do all you do is you pay you pay the reasonable price that they have for it and you'll love it i've been using their products now for i think it's more than a year and i don't ever intend on going back so again harrys.com slash real gm so you wrote a piece earlier this week i think it came out on monday about Cleveland's defense and it's something that has been kind of lingering in the back of my mind throughout this year and and to a point during the finals you know you're watching the finals and so I think the kind of the place to start with this is is this a, an October November December concern or for you is this an April May June concern it's definitely a June concern and, and I don't I've been baffled by this. Like Tom Ziller today in his newsletter was talking about how like just miss me with all this Cavs are in trouble stuff. We know what they're gonna do. They do this every year. It's totally fine. I was like, well, look, 
in the finals, the reason they lost the finals was not their offense. It was because of their defense. That team that we had seen all year long, I mean, like, the Cavs are bad defensively. We kept saying, like, look, the Cavs are still bad defensively. It's March, and the Cavs are still bad. That team showed back up. And this is where it gets, I think, a little complicated because is LeBron amazing? No doubt. Like, I'm one of the guys that is insistent and am committed to making sure that while we have him in the game, we all recognize how amazing this guy has been each and every season of his career. He is just unbelievable and he continues to do so in his 15th season you know 50 what seven the other night like unbelievable like his performances are amazing night after night after night however the problem is he's expected to contend for a championship and the other thing is no matter how good he is the reason they ran through the east last year is because the east vomited on itself they faced that pacers team which was obviously just not in a position to do anything it was falling apart at the seams and no one was happy and george was halfway out the door Right. They face the Raptors, who we just at this point know that's a team that throws up on itself in the playoffs. Like, that's just who they are. They're a team that throws up on themselves in the playoffs. If the seedings had been different, maybe the alignment goes differently and Cleveland actually gets a challenge. They face Boston, where Isaiah is clearly not 100 percent. That doesn't mean anything, though, in regards to how that matches up, because Cleveland or Boston was always a tryhard team. And we know Boston was a tryhard team because Danny Ainge tore that team down to its foundation because he saw the same thing, that this team was nothing but a bunch of tryhards. So my thing is I don't have any guarantee that this year in the East they're going to have a bunch of teams that are going to throw up on themselves. I don't have that guarantee. And if you have a, if your defense is the problem, if it's not your offense, your offense in the playoffs, honestly, until you face Golden State, you can win by playing really sound defense and just being able to execute and winning tough games. That's still true. That's an old maxim. In the East, that's definitely true. In the West, you have to be able to bring firepower. That's definitely true. It's why I remain skeptical of San Antonio, no matter how much they were up in game one. You have to bring firepower to the table. But in the East, you don't need to. As long as you can run something that is, as long as you have enough talent to run a functional offense and your defense is great, you can win. But if your defense is suspect and you're constantly trying to outscore teams, you're leaving it up to, are, you know, where are your shooters at? Are your shooters in a good place? And you look at it, and this year they're missing a bunch of three-pointers, and, and they'll probably get better. But this team is old. There's no way for this team to improve. This Everyone talks about this being an effort and energy issue Their guys are 35, 36, 34, 32. There's only so much more effort they can give. And when I went back and looked at what was giving them problems and I broke it down, they're just – they're fine in pick and roll. They have the number one defense in pick and roll versus the ball handler via synergy. And there's complications with that stat, but the fact remains. Their big problem is that they are surrendering huge amounts of spot-up threes. And that is like the one thing you can't do in this league right now especially against the Warriors at the end of it. So there's all of these ways in which, to me, I'm not saying that the Cavs are doomed. I'm not saying they can't turn it around. I'm saying there is reason for legitimate concern right now, and we saw that last year. I think last year is what was more of the mirage than anything else. Last year very well could have been. And another point that you made in the piece, which needs to be appreciated for what it is, is that they have added a lot of clear, unambiguous negative defenders to this team. And those players are real big trouble, not only against the Warriors, but against the best of the best. They Their point guard rotation, you know, Kyrie was inconsistent, but he, he did have his moments sometimes. And they also knew how to deal with his weaknesses. I, I think that can be underappreciated sometimes. Okay, so they had Kyrie. That was an issue. They replaced Kyrie and Della Vidova over time. I mean, Delhi wasn't on the team last year, but they replaced those guys with Isaiah Thomas, intensely flawed, Derek Rose, awful defensively, and Jose Calderon, who was a sieve. And you can't really get around that. And it's not like they have two guards that can defend ones other than maybe Shumpert, but Shumpert brings his own problems to the table in terms of shooting and, and everything else. And so you have that. You have Kyle Korver, who they brought back, who had real trouble staying on the court in that series. You know, now they're, I mean, whether they're going to rely on Love at center or Channing Fry for periods of time, that's a big problem. And so, yeah, they added Jay Crowder, and Crowder is a wonderful player against the Warriors, especially if he can get back physically to where he was last year. But the giveaways in terms of what they did on the margins of the roster, even more notably than Isaiah, those are big concerns. Absolutely. One of the things that they very clearly tried to do was they tried to counterbalance adding the old guys and keeping the old guys because they kept Corver on that big deal this summer, which I thought was suspect. I want to come back to Corver in a second, but they kept 
the the old guys. So they they kept Corver and they added Wade, but then they say like, well, we added Rose, who still has you know flashes of the athleticism offensively, and then we've got you know Jeff Green, who is Jeff Green and is an athletic player and does have switchability. It's just like he never makes a real impact. And Crowder, Crowder, I think he his numbers are bad now. I see good things from Crowder right now where I, I just see like the effort's still there. His size is still there. His knowledge is still there. I think Crowder's going to get better and he's an area of like, he's a guy that's going to help them in the next couple of months to get where they need to go. But they added Bogut last year at the deadline and then Bogut goes down and everyone can just kind of like, well, you know, whatever it's Bogut. He's older. And I'm like, no, this is a bigger deal. And I found when I was looking at, the, at all these plays that they were giving up, they have no trust in their backline defense. Everyone is ball watching on the weak side because, and they're not just ball watching. They are creeping down and down and down because they are very clearly terrified that one, the perimeter guys can't stay in front of their man because they can't. And then two, they have no rim protection because teams are, even when Tristan was on the floor before his injury, teams were spreading him out. We're forcing the off ball switch and taking him to the perimeter and just saying, we're just going to remove Tristan and then we're going to go to the rim. And it worked because they would have to crash down, and that opened up all of those lanes on the perimeter. And then you throw in – it's never one thing, right? So it's like you throw in like no one's – the communication on switches is, is abysmal, and no one's calling out the right assignments, and LeBron's just regularly losing guys he's guarding. Like He is just freelancing to the degree he is just losing dudes. So all of these things kind of contribute, and you're right that the roster itself – to me is the problem because they did not address they needed another wing that they could play who had some size on him and could shoot that they could manage to contain with and they needed a rim protector to back up Tristan they needed somebody because to me their biggest their two biggest problems right now Rose is Rose and that's just a whole other thing but at least when Isaiah gets back Isaiah is at least tough and scrappy and Isaiah's offense should be able to overcome that's what he did last year his offense was so good the defense got counteracted to me, their biggest issues right now, um, in terms of, of being able to offer solutions in game, are Kyle Corver and Channing Fry, and that seems like very you know marginal players, but they just don't have counter moves. Do you see kind of what I'm saying there? I do, and yeah, I mean, sometimes I want Cleveland to just lean into it and go with these all offense lineups because they can put some spectacular things out there, especially with LeBron as a passer. But then you go, well, how is that lineup going to fare against the best teams? And the answer is they'll get run. And you brought up, I think it's it's good to focus on their half court defense because the half court defense has some big structural problems that are going to be really hard to fix, even with LeBron being better and crisper defensively, which he will be at least for up to seven games in the playoffs. That's one part of it, and it's an important part. They've also been awful in transition defense, and some of that will get better, you know, with the playoffs and all that, but, I mean, Dwayne Wade doesn't get back on defense. You know, maybe he will for a couple games in May or June, but other than that, and they're also, with guys like Wade, there is an accountability because he has so much equity, not only with the league, but with LeBron. And so I don't think Ty Lue is going to bench Dwayne Wade because he's jawing with the ref and not getting back in transition. And that's another way that they got killed against the Warriors because the Warriors are the best transition team in the league and you cannot beat them unless you make a concerted effort to mitigate that damage. And Cleveland can mitigate it. You know, if they get back, that also sacrifices offensive glass and there are trade-offs with everything. But some of their problems will be fixable, but a lot of them won't be. And, And the other point to go back to what you were saying before is, the choice that they're making now to basically to get back to the rim to not concede dunks but giving up threes is a logical choice, but it's also one that can burn them later on. You don't the the problem with team defense is you want to not have to make that choice because when you have to make that choice, you're going to get burned. And that's what happened versus the Warriors. Everyone acts, you know, everyone just kind of assumes because it's the Warriors. It's like, well, the Warriors hit a bunch of threes. No, the Warriors sliced them up at the rim. They killed them on cuts. They killed them on cuts in those finals because they were able to because the the Cavs had to send so much defense to contain all those perimeter dudes. And if you crash, then, yeah, you're leaving open the best shooters alive and you're going to get burned. But they were getting killed at layups and cuts to the rim. KD in particular was just slicing through, and he's hard to guard no matter what. And the Warriors are this independent problem. And I think the Cavs, like, Cavs can't even worry about the Warriors at this point. It's like they have to worry about the Warriors because that's the only thing that they supposedly have to be concerned with. But I think at this point, like, they just need to try and figure out how to be a good team again. And that's I think, has to start with their ability to contain things. They've got zero contain. You mentioned the transition stuff. 
teams are targeting quarterback. Guys are his guy. I noticed on when I was watching the transition sequences, his guy is leaking out consistently because they know he can't stop them even if he's in front of them. Like Corver just doesn't have it, and I feel bad because part of it is Corver got this reputation for years as a poor defender because he's a white shooter. But the reality is Corver was a really good defender for about five seasons, from like 2008 to about 2013. He was a high level defender. I didn't even stretch it into 2014 and 15. He was fine. He was like not a problem. But the last two seasons, he's fallen off a cliff. And now teams are really taking advantage of him. They're finding ways to target him. And you can't have those guys on the floor. They can't have those guys on the floor on either side right now in the NBA. If you've got offensive limitations like Robertson, you're an issue. If you've got defensive limitations, you're a problem. And Corver could still knock down on the threes. And his net rating right now is still one of the ones that's above. And his actual defensive rating is a plus right now too. But so much of that just has to do with the lineups and where he's playing and when and how bad the starters have been. And – you know, I, I treated LeBron as kind of the elephant in the room in the piece because he's much more interesting to talk about from the perspective of here's this guy that's doing so much and looks like he's carrying the team, but here's all these defensive lapses that he's making. But honestly, he could still be doing this and be getting away with it. But J.R. Smith, he's just a mess on both ends. Like Smith looks terrible. And you say like – and again, the response is, well, you know what? It's November. So what? Look, JR got hurt last year. He had issues with his daughter, which were really serious and were very clearly like hard on him as far as emotional trauma. And I got sympathy for him. But when he came back, he wasn't the same dude that we saw in 2016. He hasn't been that guy that was a two-way knockdown shooter that defended at a high level since that championship run. He just has not been that guy. And if he is not able to get back there, they're in a lot of trouble because obviously LeBron doesn't trust Iman Shumpert. And Shepard is only limited in, in how much he can do, especially if teams close out on him. And with Wade, you're giving up the defensive issues. So, like I said, this roster, there aren't a lot of solutions that they have on it. And you look at it and you say, well, who can they go get? Well, they can't. There's no, there, unless you're going to trade Tristan Thompson, you don't have any other pieces that you can really deal unless you start talking about trading Kevin Love. Love or the Brooklyn pick, which would be a massively short-sighted thing unless they got the right guy because Cleveland also has this really, the other elephant in the room related to the elephant in the room is that LeBron is a free agent this summer. So do you want to cash in whatever chips you have left, however you see that, for players that A, are probably not going to make you a favorite to win the championship, and B, probably will be money that will be around longer if you think there's a very real chance that LeBron's going to leave, because why is this the team that you're going all out for if it can't make a huge difference? Of course, if it can, like if all of a sudden, you know, if, if the right guy falls in your lap, then you do that. But it doesn't seem like, especially considering how many high profile guys have already changed teams, that those offers are going to be there. Yeah, I'm with the Nets pick, I think I'm at a point where... With the Nets pick, I, I don't think that they can deal it because I think it's only a situation where you deal if you think you have an opportunity to capitalize on on a situation that's good. I think Love's kind of the same way where you only deal your assets if it looks like, look, LeBron's really on the fence. We're playing well. We could get a lot better. And he says, oh, yeah, you go get that guy. Like That changes things for us. Then you start thinking about, OK, maybe. I mean, it's dangerous because LeBron can say that and then still go. But in the short term, I think – as long as this this trajectory looks where it is, you have to hold on to your assets. And and if LeBron leaves in free agency, your first call is is dealing love, and that's you just start cleaning house. And it won't be very hard for this team to kind of do that because of Isaiah's money coming off the books and everything else. So I, I think at this point, that's the thing is is the situation to me is so bad right now that. You have to basically hold on to – you can't make any short-term fix moves because it endangers your future when it, if LeBron goes, it doesn't matter. So they're handcuffed in that way too. They are, and they also are handcuffed just in terms of what they want to do with Isaiah because let's say LeBron does want to come back, but he probably would do that on a short-term deal, maybe one year, two years, something like that. Do you pay Isaiah Thomas long-term? I mean, first of all, dealing with this massive injury issue, and who knows if this is going to linger or anything like that, but Isaiah is going to see this, at, unless he wants to do like a one-year make good, he's going to see this as a chance to get a big contract, however big that may be. And I could totally see Cleveland, Kobe Altman, Dan Gilbert, all that stuff saying, you know, that's not the right move for us. And so if you basically lose Isaiah, because a sign-and-trade isn't really realistic here, if they just lose Isaiah, then what is LeBron signing up for? Yeah, 
And I think that's a great question, man. You look at, at giving him all that money in that situation. I think a lot of it, honestly, though, depends on how they do in the playoffs, right? Like if Isaiah comes in and he just he's on like a revenge tour and it's like Kill Bill where he's just crossing dudes off his list and he goes out and goes buck wild versus the Celtics. This stuff seems unlikely because of his injury situation. But if he were to do that, that's the kind of thing that really winds up influencing front offices because GMs do get they get way more sentimental about players than I think. Uh, the analysts do online uh, and some of the the, free, the front offices like Darren Moore he's never going to be like that he's always going to be like no you are what you are like I love you but you are what you are I think the Cavs are a situation especially with a young GM that the guy makes if the guy winds up making them look good for the Kyrie trade that's going to wind up impacting things so it wouldn't shock me to see them do that and make that big investment no matter what happens and that's I think has to be a scary situation if you're a Cavs fan this is why it's really hard right like the Cavs got LeBron James back and they're going to wind up having gotten one title which they'll take obviously given it's Cleveland and their history and everything else and that solves a lot of the wounds but they're going to wind up getting one title and then the cost of it could wind up being a long time of, of struggle. And this is extrapolating a lot given we're 11 games into this season with a lot of things left to play. But I, I've just started seeing patterns in how things go in this league. I'm in the same place with the Bucks, where I'm like, I want to believe that they're going to build a contender around Giannis and he's going to develop and he's going to be their Dirk and it's going to be amazing. But the more likely scenario is no, like their moves, which were probably calculated and smart at the time, wind up failing and then Giannis gets frustrated, signs the extension, gets ex- gets more frustrated, and then down the line asks out, and they wind up trading him. Like that's just the most likely scenario because I see it happen over and over and over again. And with Cleveland, you know, star player, end of his career, not end, but you know, toward the end of his career, had to, a lot of weird things happen. Now they're in the situation with Isaiah, with his injury and everything else, had to take him on because it was the best offer they could get for Kyrie, who wanted out. All of these things, you look at it and you're like, there's just a lot of ways that this ends up going badly for Cleveland, which is stunning because they got LeBron James back three years ago. It's just weird how fast this league can turn. Yeah, it, it is. And that inspires me to, to think of, I've been thinking about something throughout this year, I actually wrote a piece on The Athletic for it earlier. But the idea is basically thinking two, three years in the future, just who is going to be that rising team? Who's going to be, you know, maybe they don't win titles, but who's going to be the next rival? Who's going to be the next contender? And there are certainly reasons to be optimistic about various circumstances. And I think the place that you start to look for that is teams that have MVP candidates. But a couple of those spots, San Antonio being a notable one, you know, Kawhi Leonard is absolutely in that conversation as long as he's healthy. But a couple of those teams have really limited their ceilings or just have limited ceilings due to circumstance. And so, like, I've spent part of this year, you know, there have been teams that I've really liked. You know, Boston has been impressive so far, especially without Gordon Hayward. And, you know, the Sixers have had flashes. I I, I still really like their core. You know, the Wolves are the Wolves. And so I'm just kind of sitting there going, well, who's going to be the second and third best, you know, teams in the league a couple of years from now? I think it's kind of scary to think about. And the reason I say that is like, what if nobody's really great? Like, what if it's just really is just the Warriors and then everybody's just kind of okay? I think Minnesota is probably the easiest answer here because they have a they have a, a younger star in Butler who's going to be his shelf life is going to be pretty long barring injury for what he's going to be able to bring to the court in his prime. And then Towns and Wiggins are only going to get better in certain areas. I still have a lot of skepticism about Wiggins, but uh, you know Towns, I have a lot of faith in, despite how bad his defense has been. And Wiggins has shown a lot early in the season. Like they, they to me just seems like that team is going to go places. I, I think it's weird to talk about who's going to be good versus promising. Like I think the Bulls could be promising in a couple of years. As bad as Foreman and, and Baxton have, have mismanaged the situation. You know, look, I still think Zach Levine is going to be good when he comes back. He's a hard worker. I think he, he'll come back and be really dynamic. I love Larry Markkinen. I loved him as a prospect. I loved him in the draft. I loved him in summer league. I love him now. Like I, I love Larry Markkinen. So that combination, they're going to be bad and get another good draft pick. I think teams like Denver are the ones that are, are probably just in that middle. They're just they're in that middle, and it's hard to see a way that they actually make a jump. Portland, I think, is another one where it's just. What what's the upside for Portland? Where's Portland going to be in two three years? Like where where is Portland realistically going to be in two three years if they don't do something bold like trade, trade C J McCollum? If they commit long term money to Nurkic who you know is good and and has nights but also has a lot of nights where it's not there, 
that's the thing is is I think if you ask who's going to be those surprise teams or who's going to be that team that's like on the rise, I think they're going to be surprises. I think it's going to be dependent on things that we don't see coming. Philadelphia requisite mention, like just Philadelphia in general requisite mention for for Philly. But so many of these teams, I think, are going to get trapped in the same place that a lot of teams get trapped in, which is they're going to be you know six through ten and, and battling every year to kind of figure it out without ever being able to find that kind of secret answer that so many teams seem to find. A key component, and I agree with you, a key component of that is a lot of the MVP candidates, which so so I have the stat that other than the Pistons teams, no NBA champion has had a has not had a player who had already won an MVP since uh, the I think it was the eighty one Celtics. And that eighty one Celtics team had Larry Bird, but Bird hadn't won an MVP yet. And so you look at the players who are in that conversation who haven't won one yet. Kawhi, Anthony Davis, Giannis towns to a point you know if you want to say Embiid overwhelmingly a those players are in small markets and b those players Mm. are in markets that don't have a ton of flexibility yeah the Bucks added Eric Bledsoe but like I don't think that makes them a title contender or anything like that they're going to need something they're going to need something to really go right Minnesota I agree with you like of the teams that are pretty well set I think they have the highest ceiling just because they have a lot they can improve and they have three really really good players at their ceilings so you have that but then you know so you Anthony Davis, I don't think he's going to win a title in New Orleans. Maybe if he gets traded, they can do something else. And so how long that lingers is going to be another factor here. And then also, you know, what goes on with the Rockets. And they probably have a couple years, but I mean, Chris Paul is a small point guard heading, you know, heading through his 30s. There's a, a real danger there. And Maury's done a wonderful job managing this team but the idea that they're going to maintain flexibility forever isn't isn't there like they're going to have to decide to pay Chris Paul or not this summer they've already paid James Harden they have all these other commitments and so there are teams as you said I think there are going to be teams that rise and teams that fall but the the part that worries me about the competitiveness of the league in that way is just that you need so many things to go right to be a true championship team and there's a lot of wonderful talent in the league right now but partially due to the way the cap spiked and partially due to just a lot of good players being on teams that don't know how to manage it right, it might be a long time before that system reconciles. And you talked about a team like the Bulls, you know, even if everything goes right for them, it's going to take three, four years, probably at minimum. Oh, yeah. I mean, the next couple of years are, are just dead water. Like, it's, we're not going anywhere. Like, it's just the, the next couple of years are just one long Warriors parade. Uh, and that's not just because of how good Golden State is, but it's also because, well, it's in part because of Golden State, how good Golden State is, because the the town is so concentrated. Like if if KD was still in OKC, we'd still be every year talking about like you know what maybe OKC can make a run. But now it's like well no they they cannot make a run even with this concoction of Paul George and Carmelo Anthony. I'm not of the opinion that they can really make a run. But one thing we have to keep in mind though is that there are always implosions that redistribute the talent right. So you look at a team like Portland. If Portland were to just have a complete implosion there's no sign that they will they're probably just going to be fine but if they were to have a complete implosion and even if they just kept dame you're looking at nurkic on the market cj mccollum like those are two guys that could fundamentally shift a lot of other teams and improve them in significant ways but it's also guys like mo harkless adding like oh he's a really valuable wing guy or al farouk aminu like oh they add like a really good multi-level player like noah vonley i like a lot over the next like four years i think he's going to make some real big jumps uh, in terms of what he brings to the table defensively. The Clippers are another one. You have DeAndre Jordan. If they make that trade eventually, that shifts how things go. New Orleans is the big one, right? Because they've done such a bad job of managing this, and Demps is still there, but they're on really shaky ground. I mean, if things aren't working in February, Boogie's probably on the market, if not gone, and that fundamentally changes whoever he goes to. And then if he goes, that destabilizes things with Anthony Davis and now you're talking about something really dramatic and obviously everyone will mention the Celtics and that happens and even though I, I did a piece of summer on how the Grizzlies still consider Marcus all untouchable and certainly at six and four and a really great start to the season with wins over good teams he's as untouchable as ever but if things go south, yes, Marcus all could be on the market. So there's all these implosions and those are the things that we don't really see in terms of if you add one of those veteran really good players to a team with not super young but like emerging talent the way the wolves have done you have kind of a new dynamic and that's probably where we're going to see those teams emerge i'll give you another one rudy gobert if utah Mm. just realizes that they're a little bit too far off i like where the jazz are but 
you know, Rodney Hood's about to get really expensive. They're, you, they're, they're just a lot of different pieces. Derek Favors is a free agent this summer and could just say, whether or not you want to pay me, I don't want to be there anymore. It's certainly possible. And so they could just be realize, you know, we love Rudy and Utah has been very loyal to their guys. You know, the players who've gone have left them. It hasn't really been that they've traded those guys for the most part, but he will be expensive at some point. And if he doesn't fit in with the timeline, if somebody makes them a really good offer, I mean, he's a defensive player of the year candidate every single year. That could do it. And also, a lot of those moves end up being unbalanced. Maybe they weren't unbalanced at the time, but they end up that way. And then the other big factor here is when teams have space, which is not very often, whether those players choose to either take less or whatever to play together, similar to what, you know, the Warriors had that lightning in a bottle to get Durant. But, you know, the Lakers could sign two max guys this summer and there will be teams that have that opportunity from time to time. There will be fewer of them now than there have been the last couple of years. But all it really takes is two really good players going to the same place to shift this dynamic. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. I think with Utah, you have to keep thinking about uh, cultural identity, though. So Utah, even when they rebuilt, like they made the playoffs as, as kind of like a scrappy seat with Al Jefferson and, and Millsap when he was young a couple of years ago. And then that team just kind of like naturally devolved into a rebuilding squad. And even then, Utah didn't go like, all right, we're tearing this down and we're going to start from scratch. Like they immediately transitioned to how can we get good again? Like what are the steps we can take to get good as as quickly as possible? And they hit on Gobert and that boosted them and kind of changed their dynamic. But that's the thing is, is I think as long as it would take Gobert actively being like, I do not want to be here. You have to like, I want out of here. That's the only reason they traded Darren. You know, that's the only reason that that happened. They, they have a, their identity as an organization is built around taking pride in competing. And I think there's value to that as well as there is in strategic planning, but it also just influences what they're going to do. Yeah, the Lakers are obviously going to be a thing, you know, no matter how many questions I have about Ball and Ingram and, you know, what they've done with Randall and, um, you know, whether Kuzma is going to be really be this guy and all of these question marks, you know, L.A. is L.A. and there's a lot of noise about it. So until they don't accomplish all these big high dreams, they're going to be in that conversation. Uh, The other one, if you're going to if you're going to say L.A., though. Look, the best player between the Los Angeles Lakers and the New York Knicks is Kristaps Porzingis. That's the best player. And if the stench of Melo is now kind of gone, that era and Phil Jackson and everything that happened, if that's all gone, and guys just look at Kristaps and go, like, I want to play with that versus having to play against that, and I can be in New York, maybe next time they get an actually efficient superstar that can actually make them better and a guy that plays with Kristaps and plays – you know, as his Robin, and then that way, that could you know really help him. Like, it's not inconceivable that the Knicks could wind up being good one of these years. It just seems unlikely because they're the Knicks. If the Knicks had spent judiciously the last two off seasons in you know in sixteen and in seventeen, they could be the best position team in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen of the big market teams because they have Porzingis. They would have been bad enough. They retained their picks more than well. The Lakers ended up retaining their picks because they were so heinously bad. But they could have been in this unbelievable spot. And it's frustrating to me because I want to see teams reach their potential that I assume it's stolen related that they were just impatient and couldn't really get there. But I mean, they were so close. They were so close to doing this and they still could end up being being all right. But I've just I just get every time I think about that, I just get angry. Yeah, they just if they just weren't the Knicks, the Knicks would be pretty good. That's just kind of how it goes is that the Knicks weren't the Knicks they'd be pretty good um they're fun this year and I'm happy for Knicks fans that they have a team that's actually fun to watch that's that's exciting but it um, is yeah and, and you know and they and they have guys that are going to develop over the course of the year I mean Frank Nokina is a fascinating defensive player already he's still going to figure out the offensive game a lot and that's something that I really enjoy about this part of the year is that you you get to a sense of like I kind of who who knows where they are right now of these young guys you know like I think Tatum has broadly looked good he's not going to make 50% of his threes for the rest of his career but he has looked good and then you get the guys who okay it's going to take a while like we saw that I think it took what like a week of summer league to know that with Marquise Chris last year and that is not condemning those players because you do not draft a guy to be productive in month one or year one, but you get a better sense of kind of what the journey is going to be like, even if we don't know where it's going to end. Yeah, and I think that that's valuable in, in terms of, of where we're at. Part of it, though, is I do try and remember, I pay more attention to the ups and downs of the season for team by team, as I think a lot of people do. Uh, they just kind of look at the big picture and where these teams are at. 
And it's like, look, you know, the Lakers were decent in November last year. Like they were, they were a decent team, and everyone was like, the Lakers are back. And then they beat the Warriors. That was wow! Look at this! Look out! D'Angelo Russell and and then no, like they're they're a bad team. And so the, you know, some of these teams are gonna fall apart. And that's we talked about the Cavs. The Cavs will go on a run at some point. I, I don't think that the Cavs are just done and going to miss the playoffs. That's insane. They have LeBron. So they're going to go a run at some point. So it's, it, But there have been a lot of teams that have started off really hot. It's also one thing I've learned is like just if you play two solid months of basketball, you can make the playoffs, especially in the Eastern Conference. Like That's how the Heat almost made it last year is, is everyone's like, well, they really rebounded. Well, no, they played well for about a month and a half. That was about as long as – as Miami actually played really good basketball, and then they went back down to earth. But if you do that, like you can make the playoffs, but sometimes that winds up masking who you are. I think with the young, with these young guys of seeing who's really good, there's also you, know, you have to be cautious of. There have been guys that have had really good starts, and, and and then things just change for them. And there's so many dynamics too. It's like coaches and teammates and roles and personal lives and how they adapt to the fame and everything. But that I think is what makes part of it fun, though, is seeing the the kind of the ride. I think Kristaps Porzingis has been kind of a blast to watch because he was a phenom his rookie season, and then last year I, I was really unimpressed with him. I was like, no, like he doesn't know where he is on defense. He looks lost. He's talking about how much he likes the triangle. Like this just seems like nonsense. Like he's feuding with Hornacek, and then this year I'm like, nope, he put it together. He's insane. He's just absolutely insane. And we're gonna see that with these young guys. I think battle constantly because right now it's. Um, you know, Towns' defense is so bad, and look what Kristaps is doing. And you know, Jokic is struggling to fit in with Millsap, even though he's averaging so many assists and shooting well from the field. There's just, there's going to be this constant back and forth about these young bigs, and, and that to me is going to be you know really fun to watch on a night by night basis as it evolves. They also have such different skill sets that I get really excited so because because some nights you you see Jokic is a world beater, some nights Embiid is like that, and then other nights you're like, oh, you know it's a little bit shakier there. But that gets into the last thing I want to ask you about because you've watched more. I've watched the Nuggets, I watch everybody, but you've watched far more of them than I have. Is what's your feel for their for their offense so far, and where do you see this going? I mean, for whatever term you feel comfortable giving an estimate on, uh, I think. They're doing better now. They've stabilized a little bit. The Warriors' loss was – it wasn't a schedule loss because it's not like if they were playing on healthy rest, they would have beaten Golden State. But, like, your third game in four nights on a back-to-back, even if you're home, versus Golden State, who's off of two days rest, like, you're just going to lose that game. You are just absolutely going to lose that game. Uh, so they were never going to win that game. But for them to be 5-5, five and five, they've balanced out a lot of their stuff. They've had, I think, two – they've had one bad loss and one – one loss that made it look worse later in Charlotte. The offense has a lot of stuff it still needs to figure out. Their biggest problem right now is that they have too many unselfish guys, and they are constantly trying to move the ball to initiate that heavy passing, and no one winds up actually being the aggressor. They're starting to figure that out. Paul Millsap's starting to figure that out. I talked to Millsap the other day and, and was talking to him about where his game is at, and he said that part of his thing is he was reluctant to shoot threes, and he's got to stop doing that, and he's stopped being reluctant to shoot threes, and it's helping to open the offense, and he's getting going. So they're still figuring things out. They've got to get certain dynamics. Him and Jokic are still really clunky together, but you can see kind of the long-term vision, and their defense was fine before Golden State nuked their stats, and that's all they've really got to be, is if they're able to have a top-10 offense, which they should in time, and a top-15 defense, they will definitely make the playoffs as a mid-seed in the, in the West, like a later seed in the West, 7th or or sixth, maybe, you know, worst case, eighth. Um, there's a lot of potential there. The hot start by most of the division has calmed down. That's going to help them. A lot of it for, for Denver isn't going to be about how good they are. It's just going to be about finding ways to win games. And that's been something that they've struggled with. So they are going to be a team where every win feels like a really big deal and every loss feels like an even bigger deal. And that's that could be draining on them. That's one of the concerns I think I have for them this season is they are just going to have to feel like every single game is so important. And that's always been a, a challenge for this team through the years. Something I want to watch for them in the next month or so is they have a bunch of winnable games. So first of all, taking care of business in those, you know, they play Brooklyn the night we're recording this. Then they also play SAC and the Lakers and the Bulls in, in November. But really the ones that I'm going to be focused most on are when they play good teams 
in Denver. So they play the Pelicans, they play the Magic, they play the Thunder, they play the Grizzlies. You know, they're not going to win all those games. Totally fine. You know, they'll lose some, they'll win some. But how they look, whether they're competitive, and those sorts of things will give me a sense of not necessarily if they're going to make the playoffs, because I feel like they are, but where they are going to go seed-wise. And for a team like Denver, especially early on as they're still building to something, those wins can be very important in in the broad scope of things. It's funny you mention that, because I have the exact opposite kind of thing to watch on them. Hmm. My 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 thing is they're going to have to beat the bad teams, which is what they struggle with. Oh, they have with. to beat the bad teams. Uh, and they're those. I, I harp on this every year. Win loss profile is so important. If you want to make the playoffs, if you're not an elite team, if you're not a team that has a, the luxury of coasting, your win profile has to be you have a good record versus the bad teams, solidly above 500 uh, versus teams that are under 500. And then you are just like a mixed bag in the middle with some really quality wins alongside some normal losses. Like it's actually better, I think, to lose to teams that are in your same tier, the little middle area, uh, and beat some of the better teams because you can just catch those. Or those are like those are building blocks that you can look back later and say that really boosted us. But you have to beat the bad teams. Uh, I went back and looked at it because when everyone was burying Memphis this summer, uh, I looked at it and on March first. The Memphis Grizzlies were a half game out of the fourth seed in the Western Conference, which would have meant Utah or the Clippers in the first round, which they would have won and they would have advanced to the second round and then they would have gotten killed by the Warriors. But there's no shame in getting killed by the Warriors. That would have been fine. They would have given them a tough battle. They played them tight. They would have at least competed the same way the Jazz did. It would have been roughly the same probably in a sweep. But still, like that was an ideal scenario for them. But instead, they lost to teams with the Nets that, that, that month. They lost to horrible teams in March. And because they were unable to take care of business, they fell all the way to seventh. They had to play the Spurs. And they wind up with that, you know, the the noble, but you never want to go out in the first round. That's just a knock to you. Um, if they had t- make it in the second round, their narrative is probably a little bit different this summer. That's who the, the Grizzlies have to beat. That's who Denver has to beat. Denver has to beat those bad teams. And to their credit, they beat in Sacramento. Uh, they beat Atlanta. They beat Brooklyn. They lost to the Knicks on the back-to-back, and that was like one of their few really bad losses. But even then, Kristaps had like a career night on a back-to-back, and sometimes like that one, I'm like, oh, okay. Kristaps scores 38, and you're on a back-to-back, and you've been in New York for three days, which that's going to distract you, let's say. Then yeah, I think that's okay for for a loss. But those like game this week is another example. Like last week, they had they came out really well because they had. Toronto, who they they caught napping and just clobbered, eked out a close one versus Miami. So they went two and one going into that, or they went two and one after the Warriors lost. Now this week they've got Brooklyn, who comes in on a back to back in Denver. They've got OKC on Thursday, and then they've got the Magic, who come in on a back to back on Saturday. Like Denver's got to go two and one in this stretch. They can lose that Magic, that Thunder game. Fine, that's okay. Loses the Thunder, they're a better team than you. But they've got to win those other two for this homestand to be successful, and those are the games that are a big deal. I don't know if it's easy to pull, but I would love to see the stats of teams that are playing the second end of a back-to-back in Denver when they won the first game. Because I feel like mm-hmm. that's an even yeah. bigger one. Because, like, so Brooklyn, they won. This might be, because this is probably going to come out on Wednesday, this might look really stupid, but I'm going to say it anyway. Brooklyn won against the Suns. And I feel like you could probably take it off a little bit. And Denver, with the altitude and being a good team, like I just feel like they're going to run those games, or at least they damn well better. Yeah, uh, they don't dominate. That was their big issue last year, actually, was they got caught early on. They had a bunch of teams coming in on that back-to-back beat them. Under Malone... They have not been great against teams that come in on the back-to-back. Part of it is that their pace has struggled. They haven't been the kind of up-and-down team that they were in the past. And if you're not running teams in the altitude, the effect doesn't hurt you as much. Like, everybody knows coming in what you're doing. Like, they know the altitude's an issue. And so if you if you don't make them pay for it, you're going to struggle in that regard. And, you know, Denver's 16th in pace this season. So... They they are not a team, and they're really that's what's crazy. They're really good in transition. They have one of the better offenses in transition because they have so many guys and so many weapons. They play a lot better when they're not trying to figure out what they're doing when they just play. But they have to take advantage of that, and you know that that'll be kind of the challenge. They should beat Brooklyn, but that's the thing is is can this Denver Nuggets team beat teams that they should beat? And that's going to be the secret to whether or not they make the playoffs. Yeah, it's a great point. A- anything else you feel like we should discuss before? I mean, we've had a good conversation so far. Is there anything else that's kind of pressing on you that you feel like would be interesting to talk about? 
no, I think I'm good. I think I feel like we covered a lot of good stuff here. I've enjoyed this conversation. You are such a smart person, Danny. Well, thank you. It's uh, I, I've enjoyed it too, and it's fun because we did very little planning on this. You know, we, well, I wanted to talk about the Cleveland thing, but other than that, and that's the the enjoyment of talking with somebody who who knows this stuff and who we can go into it. And I, of course, as always, enjoy talking with you. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks again to Matt Moore for taking the time to come on. You can read him at cbssports.com, including that Cavs defense piece, which is still up. That went up on Monday. And you can follow him on Twitter. He has a boatload of followers, but in case you're not one of them, HP Basketball, H-P-B-A-S-K-E-T-B-A-L-L, related to hardwood paroxysm, the site that he was the, the editor emeritus of, and we're all hopeful will come back in some form and I I don't have any specific intel on that but it's something that I hope for because it was such a great outlet for a lot of us. I didn't do much for HP, but I really loved the group of people and that it helped launch so many excellent writers and thinkers is something that m- must be appreciated as a part of, you know, my generation of writers. So, thanks to Matt for nurturing that and being such a big part of it. I'm in the process of figuring out where I want to go with Real Jam Radio in terms of team specific stuff versus overall league stuff. I've really enjoyed the conversations with both Matt and with Jared Dubin last week. And there's so much to that's going on. And the advantage of doing these once a week or thereabouts is that a lot of things change from week to week. And, you know, some points you're worried about Cleveland's defense. And actually, we're always worried about that. But, you know, different stories come and go. And so I think I like going more in that direction. But if there is a team or an individual that is clearly something worth talking about, I will absolutely do an episode or a segment on it. I think that's important. But, you know, especially as long as I have good guests that have enough of a wide base, I'm going to keep going to that conversation as much as I can, because that is what I enjoy the most. And I hope you do too. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com at Danny LaRue on Twitter. Email's way better. You can write it. If you write it, I will read it. I might not respond because I'm busy, but I will read it. That is my promise to you, and I will not make that promise without keeping it. If you want to support this show or really any other podcast you like, leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's iTunes, to be honest, but it doesn't have to be. And you can also subscribe and download every episode. Absolutely huge things to do. And then the other one for every podcast that has them is check out our sponsors. So for this episode, that's harrys.com slash real GM. You can get a free trial set. All you have to do is pay for shipping and it includes razor, includes cover, includes their awesome shave gel. And you, so you can try it out for yourself and keep going back to it. Like I, like I have been hopefully. And if you want to support me, there's a lot of different ways you can do that too. You can listen to the Dunked On Basketball Podcast I do with Nate Duncan. You can listen to Warriors Watch, read my work at The Athletic. You can read my work. I wrote a piece for Sporting News on the Eric Bledsoe trade, went into some detail on it, and might do something for Real Jam there. Been keeping on working with the CBA Encyclopedia. So a lot going on. And also, you can buy my book, 100 Things Warriors Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It is out on Triumph Books. You can get it as a Kindle book. You can get it as an ebook or PDF or whatever makes you happy. Or you can get a paper copy and get a paper copy. And in many circumstances, you can get me to sign it. I'm working on the infrastructure to make that happen as well. And there were also promotions, one through Real GM and one through The Athletic in terms of getting copies too. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.